Back to the lecture students. We're going to talk about, um, I'm about to say cantos, six and seven, but books six and seven of Homer's Odyssey today. But we missed a very small part in book five right at the end. And so we're going to start with that today. So at the end of the reading yesterday, recall, or excuse me, last week, recall we left Calypso's Island because Athena finally advocated for Odysseus to... Uh, or advocated to Zeus to send Hermes down to Ogygia to release Odysseus from Calypso's island. And so Odysseus uh, went off on his journey on his raft that he built over five days or four days, and on the fifth day he sailed on it. Eighteen days he's on the water on his raft. On that nineteenth day, who sees him? Which god who is very angry at him? Yes, Poseidon sees him, sends him a storm, destroys the raft. Odysseus thinks about jumping off the raft but thinks, I'll probably die if I drop off the raft. But then, oddly, a goddess, a sea goddess, a shining goddess, Lycothea, shows up. What is her other name? What is the name of the goddess who offers Odysseus a veil that enables him to keep from drowning during his final two days in the water without raft? Yes? Eno, yes. And does anybody recall the story that I said about Eno? Eno was not always a goddess. She was once a mortal but there was something very tragic that happened in her life that made it so that the gods would make her a god. Sort of like how Menelaus has endured great tragedy and will be given, uh, and will be sent to the White Isles, Elysium, after his death. Yes? I think there was something like the goddess got mad at her or something. I believe it was Hera that got mad at her, drove her mad, drove her to do what? Wait, did she like kill her kids and then she She killed one of her children. She had one remaining. What did she do to keep her madness from making her kill her only remaining child? Yes. She threw herself off a cliff. She threw herself off a cliff and sacrificed herself in order that her child may live. It's very interesting because it's funny. I'm lecturing actually about just sacrifice and just reward in the Dante class. If you listen to the lecture from last period, even I was I was talking about the incarnation and why uh, in the at least Dante's account why why the Christian God would come down to earth in order to die and the idea seems to be to sacrifice himself for something that he considers even more valuable than himself and so it's like a very parental idea right because if you're on a train track and your parents on a train track and you have to choose one but the choice is your parent who do they usually who do you think they'll choose? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think they'll choose? Oh my goodness. In any case, that was very pathetic. The idea is they will choose you to live, not themselves. It doesn't matter. In any case. So, that, that was very bad. Um, so, alright. We know that Odysseus was in the water. He was given a veil by Eno. He then makes it to an island he knows not the name of, which has no entry point. He attempts to grab onto the edge of the island, uh, but he's, he's, he's pushed by the waves against the, the island. He's slammed against it. And when he's slammed against the island, it's very dangerous because the wave picks you up and slams you against a solid structure. It might knock you out. And if you, you know, get knocked down and go unconscious in the water, you might drown because you fall to the bottom of it, much like the IS. The lesser, and so this is a very dangerous situation for Odysseus. 
Odysseus swims around the island looking for any point of entry, and he finally finds the mouth of a river. But the problem with the mouth of a river is that rivers flow which way? Downwards, towards the ocean. That means the current is against him. How is he going to get up this river? He doesn't have a prayer. Well, in fact, he does have a prayer. He, he gives a prayer. He says a prayer to the god of the river. We don't ever get the name of the river, I don't think. The river grants him entry into it, and he swims up it. But yet we have another problem. It's night. He's tired. He's been swimming for days. He needs to sleep. But if he sleeps along the beach that he's now on, frost may accumulate on him. His immune system is very much weakened from his very difficult efforts. If he stays outside during the night, he might die. And in fact, we have a... A weird expression it's called exposure you can die of exposure which means being exposed to the elements and not being able to do with them like it's too cold outside and you just die because you're too weak and he would be the sort of person that would be that weak in this instance well don't sleep on the beach then Odysseus but there's some woods off in the distance the near distance the problem with some woods is it's night this is a strange island there could be crazy creatures in these woods. Lions, tigers, bears, oh my! And we'll find out soon that he's run into all manner of crazy creatures. There could be even worse things than lions and tigers and bears. And so he looks around a bit. He's tired. He just wants to go to sleep. He finds two bushes like trees. They're sort of like middle-sized trees. I would say they're probably like five to ten feet tall, not large. And one is an olive tree that grows in the wild. And one is an olive tree that is cultivated, that grows in gardens, that is a domesticated olive tree. And they're grown together so that they form a canopy that makes sort of like a tent. And Odysseus goes inside that sort of tent canopy, covers himself with leaves, and there's a beautiful metaphor that his life is like a dying ember just holding on to a fire. You know how fire at the end of it will just have a couple embers still flaring, just barely holding on to its life? Well, that's Odysseus in this moment. And that's also a very famous image. Um, the wild olive tree that grows in the wild is supposed to be part of what a human is, because humans are, of course, part animal. Uh, we are animals. In fact, in fact taxonomic taxa mnemonic <laughs> taxonomy is the word I'm trying to make it into an adverb uh, it's very difficult taxonomical. from a taxonomical uh, perspective adding the, those extra two uh, syllables just isn't going to happen we are homo sapiens meaning that we are along the line of animals but on the other hand we are also domestic as in we have domiciles which comes from the Latin domo which means uh, 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 at home and in fact, the word dormir means to sleep. So a dormitory or a, or a dome is a place that a human lives. And so in any case, just as Odysseus is underneath these two trees, one wild and one cultivated, so are we supposed to understand that we as humans occupy a place somewhere between animal, somewhere between God. And that does seem to be what a human is. And so, well... Very weird. All right, in any case, let's meet the Phaeacians. The Phaeacians 
who live on Scoria, which is the island we now find ourselves on with Odysseus, though he knows it not, once lived in a land called Hyperia, next to the Cyclopes. Couple things about them. Hyperia is the name of a place. Hyper is a comparative term, like super in Latin, which is its Latin version, which means land beyond, beyond land. So it's sort of like an idea of what? What is a beyond land for contemporary humans in Western culture? Land beyond death. Heaven. Heaven, the afterlife, right. And so it's as if they have descended from heaven into the world. And you might say, that's an odd thing to say, Mr. Finn. I'd say, yeah, but these are odd people, these fire hands. And whether they are people in the human sense is quite a question, because even though they look like humans and they have many human conventions, they eat, they make merry, they play, they like songs, they, uh, they exercise, they're shipfaring. Their ships have some interesting attributes. In fact, we hear that their ships move as fast as thought. And the last time we heard about something moving that fast was in the Iliad when we heard how fast Hera can move from heaven <coughs> to earth. So it's almost like the Phaeacians are more like what's than what's. More like gods than humans. Very good. Very good. They seem, just as a human seems to be in a middle place between animal and god, so the Phaeacians seem to be a middle place between human and God. And so, just something interesting about them. The father of their race was Poseidon. The father of the race of the Cyclopes, who are giants with one eye, is also Poseidon. The Phaeacians once lived next to the Cyclopes. And in fact, their former king, I think his name is Eurymedon, we'll see it soon, was a giant. Meaning that the Cyclopes and the Phaeacians used to be the same what? The same size. Probably indicating that their races were related to each other. Now here's something very interesting. The Phaeacians are now human-sized. They become much smaller. But what is it that we know that they do very exceptionally? Almost godlike in their skill? They have very fast what's? Ships. What does it take in order to build an object or to build a ship? What is it that you must have access to? Besides raw materials, of course. You have to have intelligence. You have to have a mind. So this is very sophisticated. What is it that the Phaeacians obviously sacrifice in order to develop their extraordinary skill in shipcraft. Their size. It's as if they become, became less physically dominant to become more intellectually dominant. And as if they gave up their tremendous size where they could rule one island so that by means of their minds they could rule where? All throughout the world. Because their ships know all places as well. And their ships can go anywhere within the span of a day, though they move as fast as thought, so I would expect them to go even faster than that. And so it's almost as if this culture has given up physical strength for mental strength. And that, that has led to them being even more successful because you might say, Mr. Schmidt, do you think that that is true of our people? And I would say, obviously, obviously. We don't have armor or sharp teeth. We don't spit poison, but we think 
Not as well as we think we do, but definitely better than any other creature that exists, including the dolphins. All right. And so the ruler of these people is Alcanoas, and his father was named Nausithoas. And Nausithoas is the one who first led the Phaeacians away from the Cyclopes, from Hyperia to now Scoria. And Alcanoas, we find out, just as further evidence of his divine sort of lineage, is learned in the design of the gods. The design of the gods means the plans of the gods. That means the plans of Zeus or fate. It means this man has knowledge that very few people have. All right, in any case, Athena approaches because she is going to continue to help Odysseus and Telemachus, though both Odysseus and Telemachus will know it not until at least book 13, I think maybe even book 14. And so, what's the situation here? Well, Athena descends and actually sends a dream to Nausicaa. Again, another one of these dreams. We've seen Penelope dream. We know Penelope will dream later. We recall in the Iliad, Agamemnon's dream in, the, uh, Achilles, in book 2, and Achilles' dream in book 23 of Patroclus. We know that in epic dreams are big news. And so Athena sends a dream to Nausicaa. And what does the dream say? Well, the dream says, Ooh, Nausicaa, you're so young and pretty. What if a suitor shows up and he sees you in dirty clothes. Oh, that would not be something you would want. So what you better do is go down to the river, ask your father permission first, of course, because you are an appropriate young lady. Go down to the river, wash these clothes, so that if some new, young, handsome suitor shows up, you'll be ready with an outfit to present yourself to. It's sort of like Athena's like being mom before prom. You better get a nice dress, honey. You're going to want to look good. And so, Nausicaa, being herself a woman of marrying age, which means probably around our age here in this class, um, because times were different, as we say, or at that time in their lives when they were the same numeric age as you, they would be in a different part of their life, which is true. And so, Nausicaa goes up to her father. And this is a very awkward situation for her because she's asking her father if she can go wash her clothes so that she can present herself to a man who will take her away from home. Her father. And so that's sort of a tricky situation. And though I am not yet a father, I imagine that should I be blessed enough to have a daughter, that when it comes time for her to date and she goes off with some young man, I will think all sorts of malicious thoughts towards that young man. And I, I'm sure I'll feel very divided. On the one hand, I'll be very happy for my daughter to be doing the things that young ladies do in preparation for becoming you know, adults. But on the other hand, I'll be very sad because my daughter will no longer be a little child and will then be a woman. And I will know that she will someday leak. And so this is a tricky situation for Nausicaa. She can't seem too eager because even though she's eager to get married, Probably she's not eager to leave her father, though that will be a result. And so she claims it first. She doesn't say, I want to go wash my clothes because I want to get married. She says, I would like to wash the clothes of my married and unmarried brothers. And her father sees through this. He, he, he can understand that she's trying to spare his emotions, but he understands that she wants to get married. She wants clean clothes in case some guy shows up. And so he grants her permission. And then a very archetypal situation transpires. Nausicaa and her handmaids take a cart, food, and close to the stream. They're about to have a what? Let's call them take some food and games 
and go sit on some grass somewhere, yes? A picnic! They're about to have a picnic. In fact, and I will say this is true. What happens here is very similar to the mythological story of the rape of Persephone. Persephone was the goddess daughter of Demeter, goddess of the field, um, the Olympian version of Gaia, goddess of the harvest and earth. And Hades, of Scott, or, and the situation was this, that Persephone was gathering flowers with her maidens and attendant ladies and other goddesses, and that a plan was hatched by Zeus to give his daughter Persephone by Demeter to his brother Hades as wife. Hades jumps up out from a gulf in the ground in his chariot, grabs Persephone and takes her down into the underworld. One interpretation of that myth is that that is the myth of initiation for women, from going from being girls who are children in the field together picking flowers to themselves like flowers, being picked out by a man and becoming woman. The idea being that she goes from being a girl who is taken care of by a parent to becoming herself a parent. And so, and this, that in the ancient world was an act somewhat of violence because it is the replacing of one world immediately with another. And you might want to think about whether marriage, at least in the traditional sense, is the replacing of one world or one family unit with another. Certainly the old convention is what happens to the name of a woman. Not every day and not all the time these days, but what is the old convention that a woman does to her name? A man can do it these days too, yes? She changes it to her husband's name. She changes it to her husband's name, which indicates that she has done what? Married him. Not just married him, that she has moved from what to what? Married, become, moved from being girl to a woman. No. Yes? From her father to her. But she has moved from one what to one what? She's moved from one family to another. That's the idea. If a family is like a world, then it's almost like she's moved from one world to another. You do occupy a new home. There are new people there. You have a new role within the place. Is it a new world? You're all now in high school. You should tell me this. Is this a very different place from the place you occupied in middle school? There are some similarities for sure, teachers, desks, some of the same people, but is this place different? And are you different in this place? Very good, very good. In any case, Nausicaa and her attending ladies go down to have a bit of a, uh, I was about to say library scene, that's what apparently is fun to me. They were about to have a picnic. They eat, and then they have a game of ball. And the game of ball is apparently taking this golden ball and throwing it to each other. And we have a very Princess and the Frog sort of moment coming up here. Um, and so, according to Athena's plan, as these handmaidens are playing ball, one throws the ball, the other girl doesn't catch it, falls into the water, and everybody does what? Screams, ah! Shift scene. Odysseus, eye cracks open. He's underneath some leaves underneath a bush. He's been in the water for 20 days. He's very clean. No, he's covered in salt. And because he was wet when he got out of the water and he covered himself in leaves as a blanket, what is he also covered in? Mud and leaves. I said that the olive trees are a metaphor for human. Half wild savage animal, half sophisticated domesticated godlike creature. Which does Odysseus look like 
right now. A wild, savage creature. And in fact, there are some scholars that suggest that this is the way that man first appears to woman. And that, in fact, there is some, some I would say, uh, credibility to this if you look at the Old Testament uh, idea that Eve becomes conscious before Adam, that Adam must have been a savage until he was cultivated or domesticated by Eve. Some notion that men were domesticated by which gender? Women, which is interesting because we will find Nausicaa down here washing her clothing in order to get married. A very sophisticated, domesticated sort of thing to do, helping other people out. Whereas Odysseus will, of course, um, be a, <laughs> a sort of a pirate who is naked, without clothing, unwashed, and with nobody around him. Um, he, he's essentially like a bear at this moment. So, well, let's see what this interaction, let's see how this plays out. In any case, Odysseus awakens. The first question he puts to his heart is this. Are these violent and savage people who will kill me if they see me? Or are these hospitable strangers? He does not know where he is. And as I said in the beginning of the Odyssey, it is always important to know when you go to a new place who the people are and what customs that they honor in that place. In fact, we know that for sure as Americans. There are certain places that you can travel easily with your passport. You can go to France, you can go to Germany, you can go to Britain. There are other places where if you were to go to them immediately, you might have a little more trouble getting around. Like say if you went to specific spots in the Middle East, South America, um, war-torn places in Africa at this time. You definitely want to know whether the people you are going to visit will kill you or will honor Bithynia and not kill you. That is something that Odysseus does not know. But look at the situation he's in. Naked, shipless, without friends, doesn't know where he is. Is he in a good situation? He's going to have to take a risk because what's the other option? Just die underneath his leaves right now? Not a very glorious solution. And so... Odysseus decides to cover himself with what he can, his single leafy branch, and to walk out from where he is. And he walks out, and he sees Nausicaa, and he sees her attending women, and can you guess what they do when they see him looking like a monster out from the forest? Just like when they drop the ball, they scream, but this time they run away as well. All run away from this monstrous, savage-looking, nude, leaf-covered man. Except Nausicaa, the princess. She's made of sturdier stuff, apparently. And so, Odysseus has a second decision to make. Does he approach and supplicate her by taking her knees and putting his hand to her chin in his current garb? Or does he stay at a distance? What do you think? Yes, he stays at a distance. If he were to try and approach her, what probably would she do because of his horrifying appearance and probably terrible smell? Yes, his, uh, yes, run away and his, uh, his terrible odor. What is the word I'm looking for? His malodorous smell. There it is. All right, Nausicaa. Or Odysseus then addresses Nausicaa and requests clothing, <coughs> excuse me, clothing and conveyance to her city. He says, oh, beautiful princess. And in fact, I will read this to you just because this is masterful oratory on the part of Odysseus. 
even though he looks like a horrifying monster, he has no clothing. He has no people around him. He has no treasures to give. There is one way that he can show that he is civil, sophisticated, and domesticated, and not savage. What is a way that even if you were without clothing, or armor, or gift, or people around you, that every single one of you could convey to someone else that you were not an animal, but rather a human? Yes? You could speak. That's right. You could speak, and well, if you spoke well, you might say quite a bit about yourself. And so, in book 6, line 148, so blandishingly and full of craft he began to address her. I am at your knees, O queen. Are you mortal? Are you a goddess? Is this a strong start? O queen, are you a mortal? Or are you a goddess? Are you charmed a little by that? O queen, you're only a princess. Oh, I'm a queen. And you're only a mortal, but he says you might be a what? A goddess. This is a strong start. This is how this is how one speaks. If indeed you are one of the gods who hold wide heaven, then I must find in you the nearest likeness to Artemis, the daughter of great Zeus, for beauty, figure, and stature. That's pretty good. He gets even more specific. He's like, if you are a does he choose mortal or goddess? Goddess, you must be like Artemis. Face is beautiful. Your figure is well cut. And you stand with great stature. Oh, my queen. Very good, very good, Odysseus, who is in a bad situation. But if you are among one of those mortals who live in this country, three times blessed are your father and the lady your mother, and three times blessed your brothers too. And I know their spirits are warmed forever with happiness at the thought of you, seeing such a slip of beauty taking her place in the chorus of dancers. But blessed at heart, even beyond these others, is that one who, after loading you down with gifts, leads you as his bride home. I have never with these eyes seen anything like you, neither man nor woman. Wonder takes me as I look on you. My goodness, that is quite a way to start a conversation with somebody. You must be a queen. She's a princess, a goddess or a mortal. Probably a goddess, probably Diana, Artemis. But if you are a mortal, your dad, blessed. Your mom, blessed. Your brothers, blessed. But more than anybody who is blessed. Her soon-to-be husband. And this is a very brilliant thing for Odysseus to say, because what do we know is on Nausicaa's mind, the very reason that she is down at the river at this moment. Marriage. And so, does Odysseus say the perfect possible thing to her? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. In fact, he goes, he goes on beyond that and even compares her to a tree, a very pretty tree. And we, we sort of laugh at that. We might imagine that it's a tree that would have some beautiful ornamentation on it, some beautiful branches and flowers. Usually we would compare each other to flowers. We'd say, you're like a rose. You say, I don't have thorns. It's like, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. In any case, it's a comparison to something beautiful. Nausicaa then explains where Odysseus is and who she is. This is the great island of Scria, where the city of Alcanoas is, my father. And we are the Phaeacians. 
She then chastises her servants, something that we'll see frequently in the Odyssey, for running away and demands that they bathe Odysseus. Odysseus says, think about getting bathed by your servants. They're all like young ladies. I'm kind of like an old dirty man at this time, like literally dirty. And uh, I, I'd rather just wash myself. And so he does that. Later on with Euryclea, he will not wash himself. Here's a great picture. I love this. Take a look at this. We've got an Odysseus looking all dirty or clean. Dirty. We've got this. What's this? His leafy branch. We got this person not run away from him. Who is she? We got this person running away from him. Who is she? A serving lady. And we got this sitting in the water. What's that? The golden ball. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? There are, there are tons of pictures of Odysseus encountering uh, Nausicaa and her serving women. I, I, I only gave you one. Huh. In any case. Well, Nausicaa and Odysseus continue. A very interesting thing then happens. After Odysseus is bathed, <laughs> Athena drifts a mist about him. Not a mist so much as uh, a grace about him. That makes him taller, bang, thicker, bang. I, I imagine that means that means more muscle, more muscly, not heftier, and makes his hair curlier, which I always think is very interesting because that is sort of like why one showers. You shower so that you look worse or better. Yeah. Better. And when you're clean, it's easier to do what with your but that's, it's easier to do something with your hair, right? In fact, before you do something with your hair, perhaps you can tell me this, guys, perhaps also ladies, do you not generally wash it? Yes. Yes, it makes it easier to style. And so, he's looking, styling, he's looking good after this. This man who was a savage, covered in leaves and salt brine, well, now he's looking far more like a gentleman. Now he's looking far more like Nausicaa's potential what? Ooh. Too bad he's already got a wife. Until next time.